0: This is the Annex Sociology Podcast. I'm Leslie Hinkson, Applied Sociologist at the League of Conservation Voters. Today, we will be discussing organizing and unionization across academia. What has that looked like historically? Where are we today? Who's been driving this work? And how has this moment of austerity coupled with the uprising influenced this work? Today, I'm pleased to to introduce you all um, to our three guests. Albert Fu is a professor of sociology at Cutstown University. He serves in both local and state APSCUF, the faculty union for the Pennsylvania system of higher ed. This includes being a local officer during the 2016 system-wide strike. Albert has also been a member of higher education unions. Uh, GSEU, CWA 1104, and the NEA. As such, he has experience with a variety of different union structures. Albert's expertise is in gathering and analyzing institutional data and using sociological tools to analyze our own workplaces and fighting for racial and ethnic diversity. Uh, Albert is also part of Public Higher Education Workers Network. So welcome, Albert. Thanks for having me. Sarah Mason is a graduate student worker organizer at the University of California, Santa Cruz, where she is the recording secretary for the Santa Cruz unit of UAW 2865. She was deeply involved in the Wildcat strike organized by graduate workers. Sarah is conducting an autoethnography of app-based labor. Lyft, DoorDash. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you. And finally, Sophia Aftekar, is a new associate professor of urban studies at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. Previously, she was an active member of the faculty staff union, union at UMass Boston, focusing on building a more democratic union and opening up the bargaining process. Sophia organizes with the Public Higher Education Workers Network. She is writing a book about immigrants in the U.S. military. Welcome, Sophia. Good to be here. Yeah, so thank you so much. And I just want to just get into it. Um, You know, I was hoping that we could actually start the conversation just thinking a little bit about the history of what unionizing and organizing in higher ed spaces has looked like.
1: Well, I I can start uh, a bit with the history um, to help us kind of see where we are now. I think there um, have been faculty unions as early as the uh, you 19 know, teens, 1930s, and some of those unions were focused on you know the way that we would think today academic freedom issues, and others um, were concerned um, with kind of breaking down the barriers and understanding uh, faculty as, as workers, which is an issue that continues today, especially among the tenure stream um and in the it wasn't until the 1960s that there were uh, kind of legal changes in collective bargaining laws and rules um in a lot of kind of contemporary um unions um of faculty kind of stem from that time in the 1970s there was an uptick in unionization because of you know what was happening in the 70s retrenchment um that's usually, you know, those things kind of go together. And um, the next kind of big development in the 80s was um, a, a ruling um, that established tenure stream faculty in private universities and private colleges as management. And as management, um, they could not then uh, form a union because they were managing others. So that's kind of put, you know, uh, a stop to efforts to have formal unions in the private sector, at least among the ten- tenure track. In 2014, another ruling um, established the right of adjuncts at uh, private universities to unionize. And afterwards, there was kind of like a wave of unionization of adjuncts in private places. Um, but there was just a few months ago, a ruling that now excludes people in religious, uh, religiously affiliated, uh, institutions, even if they're adjuncts, uh, from unionizing. So this kind of like, you know, you're getting a sense it's kind of an ongoing, uh, terrain. Um, and another really key development from a few years ago, um, was a ruling that established graduate students at private universities, um, as workers who can unionize and they're follow the wave of unionization by graduate students in private universities. In public universities, which is where all of us uh, guests here are working at, it's really been subject to state laws. So whatever this, st- because we're public workers, often we're state or city workers, and so whatever the state laws are. So if you're in a state that that is a right to work state, that might put you know, uh, considerable barriers to unionization. Um, and, um, you know, where we are today is really unionization and organizing beyond unions is, you know, uh, been increasing and the, um, across the board, but the sectors where we're seeing it the most are graduate students and adjuncts. And this is like a relatively new phenomenon that um, that I'm really excited about is that some undergraduate students are also unionizing and organizing themselves as workers.
2: Yeah, it, uh, um, the the court case that prevented private um, institutions from unionizing was kind of interesting. As Sophia pointed out um, the uh, it basically concluded that faculty were managers in a sense that they had certain con- they had control over curriculum and things like that. And I think this is actually one of the things that makes. Organizing faculty in some ways challenging, even in non right to work um, states, because a lot of faculty see themselves as independent, um, you know, independent work, almost like independent contractors who have control over like their research. They have academic freedom, and oftentimes that makes it difficult for them to see the bigger picture of where their struggles and their concerns and um, issues of administration actually coincide with uh, their colleagues and not just their colleagues in terms of tenure line faculty, but also with adjuncts and graduate students.
0: Yeah, I was I was actually going to ask this question. Uh, Sophia and I actually had a conversation offline about this briefly. And, you know, it seems that regardless of what the local laws are, right? Or what court rulings say, that pretty much one of the obstacles um, that that organizers face at the university at the college and university level is this mindset of faculty um, that in which they don't see themselves as labor, right? Um, And I wonder why that is like, like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you see yourself as labor? Especially given how tenuous the the tenure process is, right? So, I mean, I th- I think part of it has to do with,
2: of course, um, you know, we're white collar workers. We don't see us ourselves as uh, clocking in the same way that a different type of worker would actually be perhaps doing, and having a traditional shop floor that we need to organize. Um, as somebody who's been on strike and maybe Sarah can actually talk about this when she talks about organizing um, grad students is that we forget that the university is, has a shop floor. It's the classroom. Um, You know, we, we, we could, you know, taking control of the classroom is, is one of the ways in which we can actually exert our our labor power in such a way to um, press management to, to, you know, do the right thing.
1: I think I would add two things. And and I think uh, one of them kind of, um, Has a question for Sarah in it, like I think one factor is that, especially in the for the tenure track faculty, like there is the way that you think about your management, your boss is that something you might be doing in a few years, (laughs) right? So a lot of a lot of folks in the tenure track might think like of being an associate dean or dean or something like that in the future. And so, uh, that makes it difficult for them to understand themselves as workers being, being management. And, and so, you know, and also in terms of their own career uh, trajectory, they, they might not want to, you know, like make any enemies. If that's where they're heading. Um, and I think another thing is about how we're socialized, right? So like we're all sociologists who, you know, are trained in grad school to analyze power structures and inequality. And yet, like, I think, Leslie, me and you would agree, in our graduate program, we certainly didn't turn that lens onto our own working conditions and grad students and didn't, you know, like my early twenties, I didn't understand myself as a, as, a, as a worker per se, as a grad student. Um, so I think it's like the way we're socialized as sociologists and as academics how, how plays a huge role in that.
3: I think, I, I just wanna jump in here quickly. I think this is also this question of, of why don't workers um, faculty in particular understand themselves as labor. And I think this is also a problem that graduate students, uh, graduate student workers encounter as well. And I, and I think, you know, this is for a couple of reasons. So I agree with Albert. I think there's, um, it's partly due to this, the kind of white collar nature of the work. And, um, and so that's part of it. I, I also think I also think another part of it is the way in which the university actually uses our dual status as both student and worker um to to really you know insist that you know we're we're more students than we are workers and in fact and in fact uh, the work that we do is really part of our education as graduate students it's you know we're it's part of the the training that we receive, um, and it's really it's very much you know tied into this kind of like apprentice understanding of um, of of education. Um, I also think there's an understanding that some uh, graduate student workers have um, that you know their work is temporary, and some of this I think. Uh, I've noticed some faculty play into this by sort of saying, you know, we've all paid our dues, right? So it's it's going to be hard for the next five to seven years, but eventually, you know, you will move beyond being a graduate student. Um, and uh, but I think you know we're seeing in the education sector the casualization of academic labor, and I think some of this, um, like this promise that at the end of this. Um, road there awaits a, a tenure-track job, that is really, it, it holds less weight for people because what we're seeing is, in fact, uh, you know, an increase in, in lecturers, an increase in adjuncts, and really a reduction in the kinds of jobs that um, you, know, you could maybe expect to have uh, just a few decades ago.
0: Well, I, I think that's a great, those are all great points, Sarah, and it leads me to like another question that I also hope will then like help us segue into, so what is going on now, right, in this moment? Like, what are we seeing now in this moment um, across across the higher ed space? So one of my questions is, is that when we're thinking about graduate students um, in particular, I don't know what y'all uh, graduate program was like, but you know, it seems as though the possibility for solidarity is actually very often like cut off because even in programs like, like Sophia and mine, where there were no grades, right? That actually seemed to actually ratchet up the competition between graduate students, right? Um, so when you were in a space where it seems as though competition Right. Competition is what gets you ahead. How do you create enough solidarity so that folks come together and actually realize, look, we this is in our best interest for us to come together. Sarah, what's your perspective? Um, given that that your so much of your of your work is is in the grad in is in the grad student space.
3: I think one of the things that has been really important to the work that we've been doing around raising the demand of of a cost of living adjustment has been to sort of bring to light uh, the conditions that, that people were facing in isolation and to make them really a subject of Collective conversation and then ultimately collective action. Um, because I think when people are experiencing these things in isolation, it can really lend itself to this competitiveness. So you're competing with your coworkers for the scarce housing that's on the market, you're competing with your coworkers for you know the the small handful of, of grants that are available quarter to quarter. And I think um you know, one thing that we did as part of this cost of living campaign was really just began to share stories about what it was like uh, as a renter, as a graduate student worker uh, at the University of California in Santa Cruz, in this housing market. And having those discussions openly really created, I think, in a lot of ways, the basis for the kind of solidarity that you saw and the solidarity that made this collective action possible. Um, and really, I think made it clear to people that instead of competing with one another in isolation for the scarce resources that are available, we should be demanding that everyone can afford to live where they work without exception.
0: Yeah, so thank you for that, Sarah. Um, It actually also like, raises raises like a couple of other points for me, right? So in listening to you and Sophia, like, it sounds like, you know, organizing um, is not just about, right, trying to ensure that labor conditions are fair um, and, and equitable and just, but it's also a process of, 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 I think, sort of like freeing folks up to think about their location within, within, within their college or university very critically. Right, and thinking about like what what are colleges and universities, right, if not businesses, right, <laughs> that are trying to actually extract as much labor from you as possible. Uh,
2: it's it's interesting um, as you guys both brought up uh, Leslie and Sophia. Um, a lot of sociologists and social scientists will talk about power and bureaucracy and things like that, and not necessarily feel comfortable applying those same tools on their own lives and the institutions they're a, a part of. I mean, you know, kind of hinting, going 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 back to what Sarah was saying, um, the idea of talking to people, I mean, for those of us who are qualitative sociologists, like, I mean, just a basic ethnography of your workplace, walking and down the, well, I mean, in uh, non-pandemic times, but, uh, you know, uh, knocking on doors and uh, talking to people and maybe not even just talking to people, but actually listening to them to really sort of understand um, sort of the real struggles that people have, whether it be, um, you know, moving through the tenure process, maybe uh, listening to your colleagues um, talk about the different sort of inequalities that they're faced with in terms of women and faculty of color, um, talking to your, your adjunct colleagues. Like, I mean, these, these are really important things that we know as social scientists, we should be doing external to the university, but so many people are really just completely, completely uncomfortable in terms of applying those same skills um, in, in their own workplaces.
0: So, so where are we today? Like, what does the landscape look like today? Are you seeing an uptick in, um, in organizing, an uptick in these kinds of movements across higher ed, especially given this moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're definitely seeing that. So, um, you know, as part of our work in the public higher ed uh, workers network, uh, you know, with folks all over the U.S. and actually some Canadians too, there's, there's a like really interesting developments across the board, both from places like that have not had a lot of organization as workers um, and are like starting up now pushed by the pandemic and the uprisings, and others with, uh, you know, very established unions that are, you know, kind of struggling within their unions to make our unions more accountable to racial justice goals and more democratic. So like one example that comes to mind and um, in, in, like also sometimes comes from unexpected quarters like in the Vermont state uh, college system um, in the spring, the, the state threatened to close three out of their six state colleges. And they, you know, it's just like, just a, just a tremendous uh, austerity measure. And it was their STEM faculty um, who are not, don't, don't tend to be like usually the most active union forces on your campus, very quickly organized, uh, not just the people affected by this, like the faculty and the staff and the students, but the communities that rely on these and like that that are, you know, networked with these local state schools um, for like a massive car caravan and a series of actions. And they save those three colleges from closing. So, So, you know, some of us kind of like just and it erupts um, where you don't expect it. And I think a lot of people are really looking at what's happening with K through 12 and understanding themselves, particularly in the public universities and colleges, I think as like, well, we're 12 through 16, <laughs> right? Like the next step. And so if the teachers can do it, even when they don't have unions and in right to work states and they fight for their students and their communities, not just for their working conditions, yeah, people have been really inspired by that.
2: We've also seen um, the Harvard uh, dining hall workers go on strike a few years ago as well. So it's um, it's all the different sort of groups of people who work in higher in, in education, more broadly speaking, um, not just those in the classroom, but um, uh, staff and so forth are of course affected by the austerity cuts that we've seen for a number of years now, and um, and so uh, so organizing has become very real for a lot of people throughout all of education, broadly speaking.
3: Yeah, and I think this is, I think, again, this is another moment where we're sort of seeing uh, links form, not just between different um, workers on campus but also undergraduate students. I mean, are also, you know, affected by the pandemic conditions, um, are also, you know, taking a stand against um, having to pay you know, the same tuition for remote education, having to pay um, fees, facility fees for, you know, facilities on campus that, that they're not using. Um, and also, I think, again, you know, the, with the uprisings that we've seen over the past few months, there's, at least in the UC system, and I think this is true for other campuses across the country, um, a, a battle that seems to be brewing over cops off campus, um, defunding campus police, um, you know, these sorts of struggles uh, for racial justice, I think are also happening at the same time that you're seeing workers fight back against austerity, against layoffs, against you know, these unilateral orders to reopen. Um, and so I, I would agree with um, Sophia and Albert, there seems to be an uptick in organizing um, that's happening in higher education.
0: All right, so we're all sociologists, right? And you know, as Albert and Sophia have both have both already mentioned during this conversation, is that we're really great at you know turning the lens externally, right, and thinking about issues of power of exploitation, Um, but we don't seem to be very good at looking at ourselves as a discipline. I'm wondering whether or not this moment, right, the uprising, austerity measures, you know, and, you know, and also coupled with, you know, what seems to be an uptick in organizing across campuses, even though most of us are, are remote, I'm wondering whether or not you think this might be a moment in which sociology all of a sudden says, whoa, whoa. I mean, to be clear, there have been other moments like this in the past, Right. Like, remember, I can remember, I can't even remember what year the presidential address at the ASA, you know, where, where the president at the time whose name escapes me was like, why didn't we predict the civil rights movement, right? Well, right, because because we, we weren't being very good, right? About listening to the voices of certain folks within academia, right, who could have told you. Um, so I'm wondering if this is one another one of those moments.
2: Well, the last few themes of the ASA meeting has had an activist component. Um, of course, uh, we do have colleagues that were very, very critical of um, including social movements and social justice issues as being the general themes of, of the mm-hmm. discipline. I, you know, I, I as you're kind of, I am kind of wondering if. Right now, some of those that were questioning that just a few years ago are now questioning their, their own positions
0: uh, regarding the ASA themes? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I I mean I can tell you, and Sophia and I have spoken about this a bunch of times, right? It seems like when you go to ASA, there are two different meetings going yeah. on, right? Like, they're like the sessions where folks are actually there to listen and learn, right? Um, and then there's the rest of it where it's all just about networking, right? Um, having your looking good, like using your elevator pitch, right? And so, you know, perhaps like, like I'm totally sure that the folks who are joining sessions to learn, right? Are totally down with this. What about the folks who only attend ASA, right? For the networking?
1: And I, I think part of it is also what happens. <laughs> As much as we focus on ASA, when we all come together, it's like um, mm-hmm. lots of people don't have any access to ASA. It's ridiculously expensive and yeah. very expensive city. Um, mm-hmm. I I also think that, you know, a lot of it is, I, I think, especially as academics and sociologists, our, our tendency is to think about like constructing effective arguments and my argument is better than somebody else's argument, but, um, Sometimes things it works that way, but a lot of times, uh, what collective uh, organizing is not really about. Like my argument finally makes sense, and the and so the professors will decide, okay, grad students can unionize, and we're not going to fight you, like that. You know, like that's 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 not um, necessarily an effective way to organize. And I think like the current moment where like my hope is for change for our discipline is listen it, it is the power of like the collective voice that is questioning sociologists' role in uh, perpetuating um, structures of racial inequality. Because, yeah, as part of academia, of course, there are very clear ways that we do it, but there are specific ways that we do it as a discipline. And that is often through our criminal justice programs that have, uh, you know, close ties to various law enforcement agencies, whether local or state or federal, Sometimes there are you know, what we call cop shops and you know we're basically it's a university to police pipeline that we're creating. And it's like it, at this time, um I would you know I just am really hopeful that the discipline can have a reckoning with our role um in creating that pipeline and in taking that money and creating research and narratives that I'll
0: legitimate policing the way that it exists today. Yeah, and I and I also see, I mean, that is a total direct tie to this moment, right? Um, but I also, I mean, you know, as someone who 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 studied K through 12 education, right? And reading the work of sociologists, um, you know, who'd been working on it, you know, basically from like the twenties, right, until now. You know, there's also, you know, Black Lives Matter. Well, part of that is Black Minds Matter. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely something to be said for at least some of the work in social ed that also contributes to, right, um, basically perpetuating racial inequality. Um, And and I think that we can see that across every, almost every sub-discipline within sociology. Right. So where are the spaces where are the spaces where folks are actually coming together and organizing around this? Like, where are the forums where these discussions are actually happening?
1: Well, I mean, we should look to the University of Minnesota graduate students, right, that had, mm-hmm. um, you know, that they, they they did attempt to have a conversation, push a national conversation forward about the role of departments like theirs. And, and for those of you don't know, for those of you who don't know, like one of the police officers involved in the death of George Floyd, a graduate of that department. Yeah, you know, and the faculty does not play a very good role <laughs> in that scenario. But I think that that's where it's happening, is it is the critically minded sociology graduate students who are in these programs that are teaching the undergrads and seeing the connections and the internships that are set up with the, you know, dozens of police departments. Um, that are, uh, are pushing that conversation, that creating that space for critique.
0: You know, I think that, that that brings me to to a question that I'm hoping most of the folks who are listening to this um, actually want to hear the answer to, which is, well, so what if what if I'm at a college or university that doesn't have a union, right? Um, how how do you make this happen? Like, what needs to happen? in order to organize um, and possibly unionize.
3: Even if graduate student workers are not represented by a union, they're not unionized, it doesn't prohibit them from acting collectively or from taking collective action, um, which is ultimately where the power is, whether you're unionized or not. Um, and so, one thing I think, as we've sort of been talking about, the importance of talking to your coworkers. Um, you know, trying to what are what are the issues that that people are interested in organizing around, and how do we link people up um, who share those same organizing interests? How do we, you know, get get together, get in a meeting, and sort of uh, work out a plan of action. Um, I think that, I think it's, you know, really kind of basic, basic steps that you wanna take when you're organizing. You know, talk to your coworkers, get people together, and then really talk concretely about steps that you can take um, to actually move forward.
0: Sarah, do you think do you think it's easier to do that now that so many of us are remote or or more difficult, right? Because you know, it seems to me at, at least in the organizing spaces I've been in, trust is like a huge factor um, in getting in getting folks to say okay, I'm in, right? This all zoom all the time world that we're in right now. Do you think do you think it makes it easier now for folks to get together? Or, or, or does it make it difficult?
3: Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't know. I don't know that I can I can say one way or the other. I think it really depends on, on circumstances. I know for example, uh, the shelter in place order happened in the midst of our wildcat strike. Uh, mm-hmm. And so we went from being together all the time on the picket line every single day Uh, to being completely isolated from one another with, you know, Zoom uh, being our, really our our only means of communication. And I think there were definitely some challenges. I mean, I think there are definitely some challenges to this, to this medium, Um, but Uh, I I think in some ways, people will say um, that it it can make organizing easier because you can sort of do it from whatever location that you're in. Um, In other ways, people report that they actually have a really hard time focusing, uh, and so having meaningful conversations on this platform, I think, is also a barrier. But this is what we have to work with at the moment. And just like any social movement, just like any labor movement, you, you know, you have to work with the, the, you know, work under the conditions that, that you are in. Um, And so, and so I think we're figuring out how to make that work.
2: I think uh, one, one thing, one common thread amongst a lot of the organizing uh, um, throughout higher ed, has actually been undergraduate support. Um, we, we see that, uh, we saw that in our strike in 2016. And just kind of a, a just a side note, um, I, I was actually an undergrad at UC Irvine when the when the UC students uh, organized their, their union in, in the late 90s, I believe, or just around 2000. And um, yeah, like, I mean, I remember when I was an undergrad and, and, you know, hearing that, like, my what i thought was my professor but it was actually my my uh, ta uh you know was was fighting for um greater protections benefits and things like that i was like yeah that makes sense like this is the person who's actually doing most of the teaching like i you know like i care about that and and in the 2016 strike that my system went on um like our our students when they realized that adjuncts were going to be screwed over by the new contract proposed by state system when they realized that uh faculty uh had a pay freeze uh, and all these other sort of things they were like no that's that's just not right like and in a lot of ways, that's that's what administrations and um, politicians kind of care about, in the sense that, like, you know, they, you know, when they see students pissed off, when they see their parents pissed off and siding with us, that's when they start to back off a bit and and start to concede um, to to you know what the the, the union or the, the struggle is fighting for.
1: Right, and uh, and to add a few things in terms of the scenario that you laid out for us, right? Like, uh, things are not going well in your workplace, you don't have a union, you don't know what to start, or you have a union and they seem like totally out of touch and you don't understand why they're not doing things differently. Um, I think like, it's good to remember that it's okay to start small. You probably are already complaining uh, to a couple of your coworkers and friends at work about what's happening. Um, hold a meeting right about the things that concern you, whether you're being forced to go back in person or you're expected to like do endless prep for remote classes without training or extra pay, whatever it is that your concern is like, you don't have to have any, especially like you were asking Leslie, like now and the times when we're doing everything on zoom, like you you can just hold a meeting and send it to through your networks through, you know whatever listservs you're on, and you can make it about whatever. You don't need to have the union approve it or your department approve it. Uh, you're allowed to talk to your coworkers. Um, so hold a meeting where people just share concerns. It's incredible how isolated we are, especially now, um, and how difficult it can be to think about the, the way that things are going wrong for you uh, are actually, sh- like other people are also experiencing. Um, I think that can be really transformative, and as we know, sociologists' participation in social movements can be personally transformative. um You know, use social media, get a, a signal or WhatsApp thread, and use it during things you have to go to anyway on Zoom. You're like sitting in some meeting with a dean going on about like, you know, just you know, we have to tighten that belt, and everyone has. To Then, you know, 10 of you are on a separate WhatsApp thread, texting to each other what you think about it and what you're gonna do about it and reminding yourselves which quotes you're gonna use, you know, to (laughs) on your new uh, Facebook or Twitter account or Instagram account. Um, And then you you use your research skills, right? So Albert already said, like, do an ethnography of your workplace, digital ethnography now. (laughs) But uh, you're quantitative, do a survey of your coworkers. What are they concerned about? Like, what is happening? Like, how many people are, are, feel unsafe going to campus? You know, whatever it is your, your issue is, don't wait for some, for your boss to do this survey. <laughs> it's, it's gonna have survey issues, I promise you. Um, you know, you're good at interviewing. Like, that's not that different from an organizing conversation, which is a lot of listening, like active listening to what person's issues are and, and not talking yourself. Um, you're good at archival research, research the budget, right? Research the budget of the university, and why they say there's no money for this. And there seems to be money for other stuff. Or you there's huge debt payments going to some buildings they built. And, um, I think that Sarah and Albert both mentioned it, like, don't make it just about, um, you know, kind of your nor nor narrow constituency. Talk to your students. If you teach, talk about all the stuff with your students. Um, the communities that your university is locating and your staff, which you already interact with. You you talk to your IT people because, you know, something once again is wrong with Blackboard, ask them how it's going. Are they being forced to come on campus when you're not? You know, there's all these opportunities in just like our normal work. You don't have to necessarily add an extra Zoom hours to your load. Um, And then join, I would say, join a national network, either, you know, if you're in public higher ed, like public higher ed uh, workers, um, if you're not, if you're in a private setting, University Workers United for a Fair Future or cross-campus are good networks where you learn like what is going on other places, what they're doing about it, how can we borrow their strategies, how do we co- replicate their campaign? Um, those, are, those would be the steps I would recommend. I think that's a really,
3: I think it's a really good suggestion to join these broader networks because just like um, people are sort of isolated to think that the problems that they're experiencing are individual problems and then come to find out, no, my coworkers are also experiencing these problems. And then there might be a tendency to say, well, this is just a problem with our institution. Uh, But no, come to find out you talk to people at other institutions across the country and they're experiencing the exact same thing. Um, And these, you know, these problems are, are structural and it's going to take all of us linking up, not just with our, our coworkers at our own institutions, but uh, across institutions to really mount, I think, the kind of response that can turn this ship around. Mm-hmm.
0: Sarah, that sounds like you have a sociological imagination, right? Imagine that as a sociologist. Um, <laughs> um, I think that this brings me to like to like, I think, a point of clarification. Um, that um, that that I would like, right? And I and I think a lot of our listeners would like, right? So up until this point, like I have been like using organizing and unionizing like in the same sentence, right? Um, right? And one need not right organize right just with the end goal of unionizing. And um, so I was wondering if you talk a little bit about like what is, what is the difference? You know, one of the things that I can imagine is that if you're in a union shop, right, and you're covered under the CBA, you actually might feel safer organizing um, across, uh, across different issues. So I'm wondering if, you know, if the three of you would talk to that a little bit.
2: Um, I guess uh, something Sophia kind of mentioned earlier is sometimes your union doesn't necessarily represent like the membership as well as it Maybe should or could. Uh, of course, that varies in a number of different ways across different campuses. Um, but that doesn't should prevent you from organizing in a number of different ways. If if there's an issue that's outside of the collective bargaining agreement, but definitely a labor related issue, talk to people. Get you know start start your own caucus. Interact in such such a way where either a you kind of do your own thing or B, you're able to uh, pressure your uh, union to actually take that concern seriously.
1: Right, as we always say, right, be the union you want to have, <laughs> right? Uni- yeah, you like at Rutgers University, um, the union has taken up uh, a local K through 12 issue with um, like the health of buildings. Like that is not an obvious union issue. But hey, if the members care about that, you make that a union issue. But I think also, Leslie, your question was, about the difference between organizing and unionizing and, like, I want everyone to have a union in higher ed. <laughs> so I think I want um, organizing to be uh, one of the goals of organizing to have a formal union because there are some protections in working within that framework, although often, the you know, the result is also stifling of a broader movement and, and certain like kind of systemic issues that happen. But you certainly, I don't And what we're seeing is people are not limiting themselves to organizing within unions or for unionization alone. Um, And I think kind of broad coalitions with communities and other workers on campus and beyond campus, you know, can and should happen outside of unions. Like unions should be working for those movements rather than being the outcome and the end point of having those movements.
0: You know, I, this reminds me, I remember being in grad school and I remember Yale graduate students have been trying to organize like for years, for years. And the argument that the administration um, would always like, you know, come back with is like, oh my goodness, yeah, seriously, you're at Yale and you're a graduate student and you're complaining. Um, right. And I think often that argument was used to to also shame the graduate mm-hmm. students, right? To say, oh, you think you have it so hard? What about all these other people? Um, and it, it, it's, I mean, that has that has shifted. Um, that has definitely shifted somewhat in the last, like, uh, I don't know, like five to 10 years. I'm wondering whether or not this moment, right? You know, this like, you know, extreme austerity, um, also coupled with, with the uprising and what I think of as the reckoning right, for higher ed. Um, I'm, I'm wondering whether or not, like, this has created conditions under which that, that sort of argument and, like, and those internalized feelings of shame are just no longer tenable.
1: Well, I think you're right. Like, I think what we're seeing is that the boss is the best organizer. Like, it is very increasingly with what's happened in higher ed with, uh, you know, erosion of governance, casualization of labor, the crazy workloads, austerity, the administrative bloats, right? Like, it's just really hard to lie to yourself like this, uh, right? And call yourself lucky, Um, you know? And this is why we're seeing grad students and adjuncts on the forefront of organizing, because it's hitting them the most. But it's definitely, you know, like, a lot of places, you know, tenure is not even a thing anymore. So as more people are kind of staring into the new reality, you know, it's galvanized. Yeah, I think,
3: I mean, I think the conditions that graduate student workers are encountering are not so different from uh, the issues that other other workers are encountering. Which is that you know the price of everything, the cost of everything is going up. The cost of food is is increasing. The cost of rent is increasing. In Santa Cruz, over a period of four years, the cost of rent increased over fifty percent. Um, the cost of gas is increasing, um, but of course our wages stay the same. Um, and this isn't, you know, this isn't unique to graduate student workers. This is something that workers um, are dealing with, you know, around the world. Um, and I think Sophia's right. It's it's a harder it's a harder sell because um, it's it's hard to believe that when you are spending 60-70% of your paycheck every month on rent to live, you know, in a uh, 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 an overcrowded um, home that you share with, you know, eight other graduate students. It's 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 hard to believe that um, that you know you have nothing to complain about. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I think that's absolutely 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 right.
0: Yeah, Sophia and I, uh, we lived in converted military barracks. Many of many of those units didn't even have proper insulation Mm -hmm. right so and we were and we were lucky we were considered lucky
3: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) yeah uh leslie you had talked about the
2: or brought the issue of competition um previously and i i think the myth of meritocracy is completely shattered for us for especially for grad students right now i mean even at elite r1 institutions uh, ivs and stuff like that the the guarantees that existed before even if hypothetically uh, existed before i mean I, I nobody's fooling themselves right now that it, it it's a it's a real gamble in terms of where you're going to end up when you finish your degree if you finish your degree and um and and i th- and definitely um it's in this time period i think pretty much uh mo- most of us know people who have been adjuncts or are still adjuncts so i mean that's something very real i mean just if you have friends mm-hmm. that Graduated from great institutions that are publishing and aren't able to land anything. You you know that meritocracy is, is bullshit at this point in time, and this is where that realization is is going to hopefully bring people together in solidarity and in, in, in terms of you know fighting uh, what's going on in, in higher education.
0: So you've been listening to the Annex, a sociology podcast. Thank you for our guests. Um, i need to make sure i have all of your affiliations albert Fu, uh, albert Fu from Town university sarah mason from uc santa cruz and sophia aptekar um, at the cuny school of labor and urban studies um, what else am i supposed to say okay we are on the web the annexpodcast.com on twitter at soc and on facebook the annex sociology podcast our producer is Liseth seth moreno Our music is by Alina Orsa. Uh, I'm Leslie Hinkson. Thanks for listening. It's great to be back, y'all. And I think that's it. So I'm going to stop and let's see what happens.